0: This is Personal Best. Five, four, three, two, one. Hey, welcome to Personal Best. So in this episode, I want to play back for you a chapter of the book, which is uh, Enthusiasm. So Personal Best, the book, is available on Amazon Audible. It's the collective thinking of 200 of the best minds from leaders on sports, politics, business, Uh, the sciences, the apps. One thing they had in common was enthusiasm. Wherever they were in their journey, regardless of how much money they'd made, how much success or recognition they had, they had this divine particle of enthusiasm, the thing that drove them, that got them up early, made them work late, something that meant that they would never stop doing what they did. They loved the very job. They identified themselves with what they did. If you can find that in your life, it is such an important thing. So I hope this is uh, of value to you. As ever, drop me an email barry at personalbest.co.uk. Love to hear from you. Enjoy this. Enthusiasm is a divine particle in our composition. With it, we are great, generous, and true. Without it, we are little, false, and mean. Letitia Landon. Our enthusiasm. It's communicated through our actions, our words, the way we connect with others, how we carry ourselves, how hard we work and our love for life. The origin of the word enthusiasm is from the ancient Greek, enthusiasmus, which is derived from the adjective entheos, meaning the God within. When we have a purpose and are passionate about what we do, we have unbridled energy that carries us throughout the day. This energy and enthusiasm can seem literal, a messianic like zeal and can affect us all. A person may appear to be completely unmotivated and not even have the energy to cross the road, much less have a god within. But if their fire is stoked and they engage in a discussion about a subject they feel strongly about, such as their family or a hobby, we will see a physical change. They become excited and animated as they talk about something they love. If you don't believe me, try criticising a person's religion, political viewpoint or favourite football team. It will be an interesting conversation. During my meetings with successful people, Time after time, I noticed their almost tangible passion and energy. They were driven and excited about what they did and appeared to go through life at 100 miles per hour, tackling each obstacle and task with boundless enthusiasm. Whether the high achievers that I spoke to were discussing their career, business, relationship or family, their energy and zest for life was obvious their enthusiasm did not dwindle with age. In fact, many retained a hunger to do more. Enthusiasm for life was one of the most common traits that I found amongst all the high achievers that I met. For the most part, they simply loved what they did. So, where does this passion come from? I personally don't think that anybody is born or blessed with it, nor do I feel that any particular people or groups are ordained with higher levels of energy, greater mental resources, or vitality than others. I think the fact that high achievers are consistently focusing, driving and working with purpose leads to that energy. When we are enthusiastic, we manage on less sleep, take less days off sick, work more effectively. So what makes the difference? What allows some people to tap into these deep wells of energy whilst others appear to sleepwalk through life? We've all heard the adage, use it or lose it, and this is particularly true of the level of enthusiasm we have in life. The more energy and vibrancy we give out, the more we seem to have left to give enthusiasm is how steve jobs made apple one of the world's most innovative and forward-thinking companies it's what made michelangelo dedicate the four years of his life painting the ceiling of the sistine chapel and it's what drove mother Teresa to help the sick and dying children have an unbridled enthusiasm for life but somewhere along the way it gets lost there's nothing wrong with going back to that childhood state and asking yourself what did you want to be when you grow up what was your goal what was your dream How do you spend your time now if you're already successful? If money was no object and time did not matter, what would you do? Sure, we could travel the world and sit on the beach, but eventually our life would become meaningless. As we saw in the previous chapter, life without purpose is empty and unsatisfying. Why else would some people who seem to have it all in terms of lifestyle and financial security lead such turbulent lives? Often it seems that when an apparently successful individual has no purpose or enthusiasm, they substitute the feeling of excitement with drink, drugs, sex or danger. Whether we call it enthusiasm, passion or energy, it's a key trait of people who regularly achieve more than others with similar or less resources. So how can we get that energy and rediscover our enthusiasm for life? Well, for a start, we can fuse about whatever we are doing right now. Even if we are carrying out a job we don't particularly like, if we believe it will lead us to bigger, brighter and better tomorrows, that will certainly lead to an increase in our motivation. Almost always, our skill and success in life comes down to our personal motivation. If you were offered a job tomorrow... And the work involved loading cow manure from early morning until night, how would you feel? Would you be enthusiastic? What if you had to do it for a month? Or if I told you the pay was just one penny per day, would it be your dream job or not? Would you feel the excitement of limitless opportunity? How about if it was agreed you would do this job for 30 days straight, no time off, and just one 15 minute break for lunch every day? But the one penny daily payment would double each day. So on day one, you'll receive one P. On your second day, you'll get two P. Day three will pay a whopping four pence and the fourth day you'll be up to eight pence. Are you feeling any better about the situation? If not, grab a calculator and work out what you would earn over the entire 30-day period. If the pay doubles every day, you'll find that by day seven you'll be paid 64p. Day 12 is worth £20.48 and if you can stick at it right up to day 20, you'll be paid £5,242.88 for that day's work. In fact, if you keep going, you'll discover that overall payment for a single month of hard, unrelenting, thankless and ultimately pointless work will be a total of £10 million. In fact, more. Now, do you think you could hack the job for a month? Could you jump out of your bed every morning full of enthusiasm when you think of the end game? Of course you could. It's a ridiculous scenario, but the point's valid. If we believe that what we are doing will help us to achieve a fantastic goal, we could immediately feel passionate and enthusiastic about it. In the manure shoveling example, we would be motivated to work hard, we would turn up on time, and we would be diligent. Given the pay scale, we would not want to give our employer any reason not to pay us. This doesn't necessarily mean we love the task at every moment, but we love where it can take us. So do you know anyone that claims they're not a morning person? I always find it funny when friends of mine say they find it difficult to get out of bed in the morning. One particular acquaintance says he hates mornings and just the thought of getting up and driving through the cold to get to his office at a time when the rest of the world is barely awake has him reaching for the snooze button on his alarm clock. However, on Saturdays he plays golf and he doesn't mind getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning, preparing a flask of coffee for himself and his golf buddy, getting to the club by 6am and practising for an hour before his 7am tee-off slot. All this before returning home about 11am so he can spend the rest of the day with his young family. So how can somebody that can barely drag himself to the office before nine o'clock during the week find that he's able to get up at the crack of dawn on Saturday without needing an alarm, drive to the golf course, practice, play his round, drive home and still have the energy to play for his kids? The answer, of course, is that he has the energetic force of enthusiasm for his golf and his family. However, he obviously has less for work. My friend is never going to make his fr- living from playing golf. He admits he isn't a particularly good player, but he has toyed with the idea of setting up a golf tour business in conjunction with his his travel agency and I suspect he'd work twice as hard for half his current salary in order to make success of his own business. He'd also be much happier. Every successful person I spoke to during my research was doing exactly what they wanted to do in life. It may be a chicken and egg situation. Are they successful because they're doing something they're passionate about or they've become passionate about what they ended up doing? It doesn't really matter. The fact is, they're enthused about and love what they do. So be enthusiastic, even if you have to tell yourself a white lie and make yourself feel passionate about what you're doing right now. Get into the habit of being enthusiastic about what you want to do, about your life, your relationships, and your career. Enthusiasm will open the door to new opportunities and provide a renewed perspective. I met Eric Lubbock, who was an MP for many years, working tirelessly with distinction on many human rights causes. When I interviewed him, he was 83 years old, but still maintained his interest in and active support of several causes. Now, Eric had been unwell for some years, quite open about his situation. He even posted scan results on his blog. He had a rare blood cancer. Eric told me, the doctors told me I have about three years to live, but only one year of useful activity left. Eric had lived a full and productive life, and it would be perfectly understandable for him to choose to slip quietly into a more private life. Eric said, I have no ambition I than to continue with what I'm doing. There are no places he felt compelled to visit, no sights they wanted to see and nothing that he felt he had to achieve before he died. He simply wanted to keep doing what he had always done and continue to work with, and speak out for those people whose voices really get heard. Because Eric was already doing what he was most enthusiastic about, he made a conscious decision to carry on exactly as he was. It was his fulfilled purpose in life. He was passionate about his work and therefore he wouldn't choose to do anything else. Work isn't work if you do what you love. If you get up every day and do something that is in complete alignment with your values, it doesn't feel at work. And this creates freedom to enable you to gain your own personal fulfilment. You have to ask yourself whether you're truly enthused about what you do. If you do what you do out of an obligation to others or solely because it provides you with money or because of the expectation of others, you need to realise that sooner or later it will cause you distress. We've all heard the saying, if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. And this sympathy. Be particularly true of people I spoke to as researching this book. If you're not already doing what you want to do for the rest of your life, clarify what it is that you want and work towards it. If you are working towards anything other than fulfilling your passion, your time is being wasted. Let me tell you about the 74-year-old boy Wonder. At an age when most men have retired, Trevor Bayless still bubbles with enthusiasm for his work in life. Talking to Trevor is like talking to a five-year-old on Christmas Eve, and the world feels like a more exciting place. Trevor is an incredible person whose sheer love for life makes other people feel better just by speaking to him. Trevor was born before the Second World War. In his youth, he was an enthusiastic swimmer and won national honours in the sport. When he talks of his life and career, he's talking about love. Trevor's always done something he loved, something he enjoyed that filled him with enthusiasm. Even speaking today, his passion is clear because the things that fill his life immerse and interest him. Trevor's father was an engineer, his mother a thespian, both seem to have had an influence on their son's colourful career choices. Although best known as an innovative British inventor, it's less well known that Trevor also worked as a stuntman after his national service and used the money he earned from underwater escapes to set up a swimming pool company. The pools were particularly popular as the first freestanding types to be available in the UK, and the simple installation encouraged schools all over the country to buy them. Trevor's inventiveness came to the fore when after seeing a number of his stunt friends suffer serious injuries, which sometimes caused permanent disabilities, he decided to create products to make their everyday activities a little more easier to perform. Trevor needed to understand the issues that affect people who don't have full use of their physicality, but rather than attempt to gain this knowledge intellectually, he actually secured his arms to his side with a belt and spent days on end with only one functioning arm in order to understand the challenges. This exercise enabled Trevor to fully appreciate the difficulties that people with physical disabilities have with everyday tasks, and he was then able to go on to invent several devices to help them. When AIDS was recognised as being a worldwide problem in the late 1980s, Trevor was watching a TV programme about the spread of the disease. Trevor told me, I could have been watching Strictly Come Dancing or anything else, but I happened to be watching a programme about the spread of AIDS throughout Africa. They said the only way they could stop the disease was by spreading information and the best way to do this was by the use of radio. But the problem was most of Africa did not have that. Access to electricity and batteries were expensive. Using his knowledge of electric motors and the various ways in which they could be powered, Trevor took an electric motor from a toy car and a clockwork mechanism from a music box and created a rough prototype of the first wind-up radio. Although he painted his idea, it was universally rejected by prospective manufacturers when he tried to get the prototype into production. Despite this, he battled on and told me I would work 18-hour stretches at a time, fall asleep in my clothes and then wake up and start work again. Although I was exhausted, the work had become pure pleasure. Trevor continued to try to get his radio into production and recalls being portrayed in the media as a nutty professor especially following rejections from the Design Council and being turned down by potential part suppliers who told him that his idea was unworkable. Trevor persisted with this idea for five years and remained convinced it could positively impact the lives of millions of people. Eventually, after featuring on the BBC science programme Tomorrow's World, Trevor received some investment and formed 3Play Energy Company. Trevor saw his product become a reality in 1995 when the 3Play radio came off the assembly line in Cape Town. As he watched his design become a reality, he remembered the many battles and rejections he experienced in order for this to be possible. Tears welled in his eyes, as he looked around the newly built manufacturing facility and the largely disabled workforce who were producing his award-winning Clockwork Radio. Immediately after the visit, Trevor met Nelson Mandela, the South African president, who congratulated him on his achievement. The Freeplay Radio went on to be widely distributed throughout Africa and was used as a vital communication and educational tool, It enabled people who had no other means of listening to the news to access several media channels and allowed information to be distributed amongst communities that had previously been cut off. None of this would have happened without the English inventor's unbridled enthusiasm and his belief and passion in what he did. Trevor continues to invent to this day and has numerous patents to his name. He is most proud of Bayless Brands, which helps inventors get their creations to market. Trevor says it best. I can only say to people that you have to love what you do. The love for what they did was a theme reiterated by virtually everyone that I interviewed during my research for this book. A fundamental characteristic of successful people is their passion and purpose in their own life. If you want to become your best, you need to get into that mindset. What are you passionate about? What do you love? Write it down and keep writing. Don't think about it as you write. Don't do it from a mature perspective or second guess what you will write. What are you truly passionate about? Regardless of personal issues or perceived financial constraints, We all need to do what we really want to do. And when we do what we love, the success, including financial rewards, of our venture will follow. This requires us to have total faith in ourselves and our vision. Most people are afraid of perceived risks and potential failure. But what is there to be afraid of? We should all be more afraid of living a half life, a life that doesn't allow us to keep the promises that we made to ourselves or that doesn't allow us to become the people we believe we can become. Maybe you want more freedom to be with your family, or perhaps you want to start your own business, or change your profession, or do something completely different with your life. All of us have heard the persistent voice in our minds telling us to grab an opportunity or to follow our hearts, the inner voice that tells us to go for it, our inner enthusiasm, intelligence, it's our true self. If we are in a job, a relationship, or a situation that doesn't make us happy, we need to reevaluate or change it. Even if it makes us uncomfortable, Just because the job is what pays the bills, or because we feel various personal obligations, this is not a good enough reason. Listen to your inner voice. Listen, because no matter how hard you try to suppress that voice and the accompanying feelings, you know intuitively that you should follow the message because it aligns with what you love and needs to be listened to. Change can be instantaneous and only requires that we admit to ourselves what we really want to do in life. We can change and become contagiously enthusiastic. The sad truth is, however, we let fear and doubt separate us from the things we love to do. We do not always appreciate the abundant opportunities that we have been afforded. We don't always appreciate that we don't have to do anything that we don't want to do. We have choices, whether to work or not work, whether to work or play, whether to be in a relationship or not, whether to continue down one path or move to another one. We are blessed to live in a democratic society that affords us all those choices. Yet we often take the view that we are restricted and cannot change anything. Nothing could be further from the truth. We have the opportunity and the choice to follow our passion i met dennis skinner he's one of the longest serving members of parliament his direct approach and acid tongue have earned him the nickname the beast of bolsover a staunch socialist and true conviction politician he has never served on any parliamentary group despite his experience he doesn't eat with his parliamentary colleagues in the commons dining room he refuses to take trips even on parliamentary business overseas when he feels they are paid for by the taxpayer And against tradition, he always remains in the House of Commons throughout the Queen's speech and state opening of Parliament. Dennis was elected MP for Bolsover in 1970 and has held the seat ever since, although he has been suspended from the House on ten separate occasions for using unparalleled lamentary language. It's fair to say Dennis isn't a man to be trifled with, but when I suggested a meeting, he guardedly agreed. Despite his fearsome reputation, Dennis's enthusiasm is still as evident as ever when it comes to communicating his ideals. However, he now has the additional energy and enthusiasm of a man granted a second chance. Dennis told me some years ago, and only a short time after undergoing a life-saving heart bypass operation, he'd been diagnosed with cancer. Dennis said he'd always retire at the next general election, but now he feared the worst, and it seemed that circumstances would overtake him. However, following intensive treatment, Dennis was given the all-clear. I recall seeing the world in a different light as he walked from Chelsea Royal Hospital back to Westminster. He told me, on the way back from hospital, I looked at a blossom tree. I'm sure I'd passed it before, but never noticed it. But now I looked at this tree and saw how beautiful it was. I thought it had the blossomest blossom I'd ever seen. Life was his again. An opportunity once more lay in front of him. But why wait? Why should we wait until a seismic event or news changes our perception of life? Being grateful for where we are right now and for the opportunities that lie in front of us are the greatest starting points. You remember your mother telling you to count your blessings. She was absolutely right. Developing a grateful attitude and feeling thankful for all the experiences and skills you have provides you with a great platform in which to build a whole new world of opportunities. Be grateful about what you have. Be excited about possibilities. And feed the enthusiasm and the energy that is contained within you. Do you have emotions that you don't always share? Do you have dreams that even those people close to you don't know about? What are you waiting for? Admit it to yourself. What is it you want? And follow it through. This will have a massive positive impact on your life. Listen to your inner voice. During the 2008 US presidential campaign, Barack Obama fell behind Hillary Clinton, his main rival for the Democratic nomination. Clinton's uh, campaign had gathered momentum, had the support of the party's establishment, and it was better funded. It began to look as though Obama's attempt to become the first black American president was set to fail. And like many nominees before him, it seemed increasingly likely that he wouldn't win his party's ticket, much less have the opportunity to take a run at being president. During a campaign meeting, Obama asked Ann Parks, a legislator in South Carolina, whether he could expect her nomination in the upcoming caucus election. Parks replied that if Obama committed to coming to her hometown and conduct a rally in Greenwood, she would probably vote for him. What Parks did not mention, however, was that Greenwood was distant from the main infrastructure within the state, By the time the visit came around, Obama's campaign had lost even more momentum and he was somewhat dispirited. After a long day, he trudged to his hotel sometime after midnight and was planning to go home and see his wife and children the next day. It had been some time since he'd seen them and he was looking forward to spending a few days at home. However, his assistant reminded him of his commitment to go to Greenwood the following morning and that he would have to leave at 6am. Obama went to bed in a terrible state. And when he woke the next morning, he felt even worse. He tells the story of how he wandered to the window and looked outside to see it was a grey, miserable day and the rain was falling hard. His mood was worsened even further when he looked at the New York Times to find an article had been written which indicated his campaign was about to come off the rails entirely. After coffee, he walked out to his car, his umbrella blew open and he got soaked. He was now tired, wet and by his own admission, very grumpy. When Obama arrived at the rallying Greenwood, he walked into the room to find that only 20 people had come out to meet him. These people looked tired, overworked, sick of the weather. But nonetheless, Obama went straight into campaign mode, shook hands, talked to people and asked questions. He began to speak about his hopes and his vision for the future of America. But his flow was interrupted when a voice behind him shouted out, fired up. He turned around but could not identify who had spoken. He began speaking again. The voice repeated, fired up. This time... The audience jokingly joined in and replied, fired up. He turned around and this time the voice said, ready to go, fired up, ready to go. Barack Obama now saw who'd interrupted his speech, a middle-aged supporter called Edith Childs. The candidate kept his gaze on Edith, but she stared back at him and yelled again, fired up, ready to go. The audience, warming to the theme, shouted back, fired up, ready to go. Every time Childs yelled, fired up, ready to go, the audience replied in kind. Obama said later that the Aziz incantations were flying around the room. He stood at the podium trying to figure out what exactly was going on. He couldn't fathom it, but he liked the sentiment. Eventually, he started shouting, fired up, ready to go. The chant then took fire and effectively became one of Obama's key campaign slogans, along with Yes, We Can. His point in retelling story is that one voice can change a room just as it did that day. Obama went on to win 10 straight election victories, which got him the Democratic nomination and ultimately the presidency. The president said that if one voice can change a room, it can change a city. If it can change a city, it can change a state. If it can change a state, it can change a nation. And if it can change a nation, it can change the world. On that day, Edith Child's voice did indeed go on to change the world. Approaching Life with Enthusiasm with fire in your belly, with a never say die attitude, can change your life and indeed the world. It comes down to deciding what you're passionate about because whatever drives your enthusiasm isn't just what you should be doing with your life, it's what you must be doing with your life. Thank you so much for listening to the Personal Best podcast. As ever, drop me an email barry at personalbest.co.uk. Love hearing from you. And if you have the chance, it would mean the world to me. I mean, the world if you could leave an honest review on Apple Podcasts. It's how other people find us, discover us, encourage us to do more of this stuff. Thanks so much. Live well, be your personal best.